Hi there, and welcome to another episode of Dice and Dachshunds. I'm Matthew. And I'm Diana. And we have Buddy and newcomer Jamie here, although they're starting to wiggle, so I may have to put them on the couch here in a minute. We haven't been podcasting so much lately, but we have been playing games, so we have some games to talk about. And the first one we were going to talk about is Too Many Bones. Yeah, you. Uh, there's a good chance you haven't heard of Too Many Bones. It's by a small company called Chip Theory Games. They're a small American company, I think in Minnesota, and they design games using high-quality poker chips as the primary pieces, and these chips have images printed on them and stats in high definition. And their deal is that they try and make their games as high-quality as possible, so... Instead of boards, they use high-resolution printed neoprene mats. They They're like fancy mouse pads. Yeah, although the material is slightly different. That's what and, they look like to me. And the cards in their games are printed on PVC plastic, so they're pretty indestructible. Their stuff is expensive, and because of that, they only sell direct. So you'd have to go to their website and order their games directly or be involved in their Kickstarters in order to get their hands on them. And that's because if you add in a middleman fee to their already expensive products, nobody's going to want to buy them. Uh, Too Many Bones, the base game, sells for $120, if I remember correctly. And there are a lot of add-ons you can get on top of that. So in terms of the way that the game actually plays, it's a cooperative combat adventure game i don't know maybe it's got a more technical term they call it a dice building rpg i believe it's kind of its own thing there's a big bad guy who's been sending minions toward your town and you are gear locks which is kind of techno gnomes big ears and there's a group of you that you know you choose your characters and you all have different sort of combat specialties some are sneaky some have bombs some are more tanks. None of them sort of map exactly onto classic RPG roles from like Dungeons and Dragons, but it's the same sort of idea that you want kind of a balance in your party of different roles with different specialties, ones who can take damage and ones who can't necessarily take damage but can do more damage, that sort of thing. When you decide what character you want to play, they come with a mat, and the mat is perforated. It has little dice-shaped holes in it. And you get a bunch of starting dice, and then there's more dice you can get later. And these are all custom dice that fit into slots in your mouse pad mat. And some of them you roll in the course of a combat. Others are more counters. You have your stats and your special abilities, and everything is there. And then you start your adventure by drawing cards. One of the weaknesses of the game, although apparently it's being fixed in the expansion, is that you always start with the same, like, three cards. And so when you're playing multiple games, you're like, oh, look, it's this card again. You know, oh, we have to make this exciting decision about whether we try to take this bridge. We know what happens this way. We know what happens this way. But once you kind of get past that choke point, then the cards are shuffled. So you have different encounters that come up. In keeping with it being a co-op game, it's very hard. It's very easy to just wipe another Slight weakness is that sometimes you just get one-shotted before you have a chance to do anything in a combat. It's not sort of perfectly balanced to prevent that happening. But at the same time, you know, like I said, co-op games are hard, and it really makes you 
pushed through, we won a game or two that we really didn't expect to win. Ooh. Oh, puppy's got commentary too. You want to take over? Sure. I think we've had that problem of a character dying before they get a chance to go less and less as we've learned the game better. Mm -hmm. uh, primarily the ways to mitigate that are leveling up very carefully and to some extent more conservatively than you might want to, depending on your party makeup with an eye towards survivability in the first round, assuming you might take a pretty hefty hit before you get to go and building that into your character design. Before we go on to talking about the game more in depth, it's worth talking about the dice that Chip Theory Games is using here. When it comes to custom dice, there are basically three ways you can do this. The cheapest ones are printed on the face of the dice with an ink. If you've played Roll for the Galaxy, you've seen quite a lot of printed dice, and one of the reasons why they use dice cups in that game is that printed dice are the most prone to wear. From the oils in your hands and just use, the ink may come off over time. The way that is solved and given an even better look is kind of the next step up in complexity and expense, which are engraved dice. These you see a lot in the board gaming world, and they're dice where the images on the dice are engraved into the die. They're recessed somewhat. Even your standard six-sided dice with the pips is usually engraved with the ink for the pips recessed, and that really helps protect it from wear over time. For too many bones, they're using a method called heat fusing. They're flat-sided dice, and they're all six-sided, but rather than having ink printed onto them, it's actually fused into the surface of the dice. This allows for a much higher level of resolution. If you've seen the Star Wars Destiny dice game, they're using this same method there. So you get a much better resolution on your images, and the dice are pretty indestructible. Because it's part of the plastic now, the ink is not going to come off. But this is the most expensive way to do it, and that contributes to the game's significant cost. So as Diana said, you have... Just a second, these dogs are getting heavy. As Diana said, you pick your party makeup, and you start advancing through the game by drawing these encounter cards. Each day you draw an encounter card, and that encounter card tells you what happens to your party on that day. It frequently has a choice between two different options, and it's listed on the card what the outcome will be, and usually the outcome is combat. And one choice will typically set up one set of conditions for the combat, and the other choice will set up a different set of conditions. And there's usually a difficulty choice there. Do you want to go with choice A, which is going to be harder, but will result in more goodies when you survive, if you survive? Or do you want to take the easier route? And based on that, you then set up a battle mat with bad guys. And the number... They are, in fact, called baddies yes. in the game. That's the technical term. Yes. And the number and difficulty of the baddies that you encounter in a fight is based on the size of your party and the day of your quest that you're on. So the further you get into the quest, the more difficult they are. And then there's a maximum of four baddies allowed on the mat at any one time, so if you draw more bad guys than that, you have a queue or a stack of bad guys sort of waiting their turn 
off to the side, and as you defeat the ones that are already on the mat, you'll bring in extras to take their place. And then you place your gear locks on the mat, and you're moving orthogonally from place to place. The mat has, I believe... I think it's four by four yeah. grid. So it's 16 spaces. And you're using your gear locks dexterity stat to move and to roll your dice. And based on your attack or your defense stats, you'll be rolling attack or defense dice. Attack dice hurt immediately, whereas defensive dice, you're sort of building up a shield. They'll get locked on your character mat and will prevent damage done to you later on. You can also use your dexterity points to roll your skill dice, and that's really where the meat and excitement of the game is, because over the course of your adventure, you're choosing various different ways to upgrade and customize your character in each of the gear locks that you have to choose from. There are four in the main box and three additional ones that you can purchase separately. Not only is each one of those gear locks very different from the rest, but within each gear locks tech tree or skill tree, there are different directions you can take them. So if I'm playing Gilly, one of the add-on characters who's a ranger, both my brother and I tend to take him into a very strong sniper role where he does massive amounts of damage, but is a little fragile if you get close to him. But instead, you can give him these pets that he summons, which I would strongly recommend if you're playing with two players and don't have other characters to get between you and the bad guys. And these pets can dramatically increase his survivability, and he can even train them to attack in very useful ways with special abilities. He also has a trap tree where you can put out traps on the mat before the bad guys come out that can really hurt their stats. Yeah, and this isn't going to be like a video game RPG where you end up filling out, in the end, you know, all of your character's abilities. You basically are going to have to choose a direction. You might or might not get to the end of that one sort of approach, but you're certainly not going to fill everything out. There's lots of replayability. There's lots of, oh, what if I took that character in this direction instead? There are several characters that can create little autonomous extra characters to soak damage, to do damage, like the ranger's pets. There's also one that builds little robots. The the woman with the the woman with the bombs. Boomer. Boomer. Boomer throws grenades. Yeah, Boomer throws grenades, and so she has to roll dice to find components. But if you can stay alive for enough rounds to get the components you need to build a bomb, then you can do a whole bunch of damage. It's worth mentioning that a lot of video and computer game RPGs don't allow you to lock in the entire skill tree either. Uh, uh, yeah, but still, this is going to be a lot shorter than something like that. You're mm -hmm. going to have to choose maybe one or two or three special dice that you then play with, and then pretty soon, oh boy, it's boss time. Because the way the structure works is that you have these encounters, and they get more difficult as you go along, and once you've reached a certain number of days, which varies, you reach your boss, and you pick your boss at the beginning of the game, and that determines which categories of baddies you're fighting all along. And how many days you're And how many days you have. But once you've reached that magic number, then you can at any time choose to go after the boss. And generally you want to do that quickly because your encounters are getting so difficult they're very likely to kill you. You might as well go out trying to kill the boss than just trying to kill some minions. And these fights, of course, are boss fights. They're really difficult and it's really easy to lose them. But if you do, you feel really amazing. 
and that's kind of the thrill of the game. Yeah, I would strongly recommend it. If it you get is, the cash. If you've got the cash, you're probably going to want to pre-order if you go to their store and you're interested. Because they're a small company and because the components they're using are so expensive, they tend to do relatively small print runs that are often largely pre-sold before they arrive in the U.S. It's worth mentioning that late last year, in 2017, they kick-started Undertow, which is a standalone expansion to Too Many Bones, which only has two characters in it and has a much lower price point. I should have looked it up before we started podcasting, but I think it was somewhere around $60, which is a more approachable way to jump into the game. And the characters are unique and the encounters are unique. So if you like what you're playing, you can then buy the full game and or the three soon to be four extra characters and sort of build it up from there. During the Kickstarter, they also started pre-selling a expansion to the full game that allows you to build up a campaign where you're fighting your way through the bosses in succession and can save your progress and come back to it later on. They've already built something like that into the upcoming Undertow expansion. Another thing that's really neat about the game is their interest in gender inclusiveness. None of the characters are dressed in any sort of suggestive way. I'm sure we've all seen plenty of female warriors whose armor wouldn't protect them in the slightest, and so on. The gearlocks are all dressed the way you would expect them to be dressed for their various jobs and interests. And with this expansion, I believe they're going to reach full gender equality in terms of the male to female numbers. There might still be one more male character, and the add-on character that they're releasing with the expansion gasket is a genderless hydromech robot. It's always really good to see that. Yeah. And I like, too, the feel of the story, the flavor of it. It's not that you're the great heroes of the Gearlocks going out to, you know, nobly vanquish the evil. You're kind of the third string, and you got sent out because these guys are probably going to wipe everybody out, so why not try you guys? And you kind of do dumb things, and the flavor text of a card will be like, you screwed this up really badly, so now there's monsters. And I kind of like that sort of feel, that you're all just kind of bumbling along and you either fail not very unexpectedly or you succeed beyond all expectations. And I, I kind of like that. And that's sort of reflected in the art, too, that you're all these kind of weird little gnome creatures with weird looks on your faces, not like the noble heroes. And this is a magic-free world, or it's at least a tech advanced to the point where it is somewhat magical. More steampunky than your typical fantasy tropes, which some people really appreciate and for some people is kind of a turnoff, but it's always nice to see somebody taking things in a new direction. And a lot of the Gearlocks, while you can see aspects of them that are culled from classes in other games, they really do have their own unique feel to them in terms of how they play, and they all play very differently from each other. I think the writing is quite good. There are maybe just a couple so far that I've noticed in the encounter cards. There's some pop culture references that feel a little forced. There's one in there that refers to Radaway and Power Armor. These are references to the Fallout computer games, and I'm a huge Fallout fan. But it feels very out of place, 
the way it's used in this game. And really, I see the one-shot situation as something that you have to adapt to and learn about, and is also something that they're mitigating with the characters in the new expansion. But that's kind of my one complaint about the game, is that sometimes the writing takes me out of the world rather than pulling me into it. Usually it pulls me into it, but sometimes it pushes me away. And that is really a tiny, tiny complaint. So if you are up to scraping together that level of cash, and let's be honest, it is a lot of cash, especially if you get the upgraded health chips, which I would recommend but are not required, and get the extra characters, which I strongly recommend, it adds up really quickly, but I think it's worth it. All right, so should we move on to our next game we want to talk about? Anything else you want to say about Too Many Bones? Uh, No, but there is something else I want to say about Chip Theory Games. Too Many Bones is their second game, although they released several boxes for their first game. Their first game, Hoplomachus, is something that we're probably not going to go into depth on in the podcast just because it's not really Diana's sort of thing. But it is mine. And Hoplomachus is a gladiatorial combat game. And they mentioned somewhere in the manual, I think, that they were inspired by turn-based strategy games. And it very clearly shows. As a huge fan of XCOM and so many other games of that style, King's Bounty and that sort of thing, I really like it. I think the solo play, all of their games have a solo play variant built in. I thought the solo play is excellent, and I'm not a solo gamer when it comes to board games. And my father and brother both enjoy them very much. Again, rather pricey, although less so than Too Many Bones, and highly recommend it. So the next game that we wanted to talk about is a much, much lighter and much less expensive game, Ex Libris. Although I think Ex Libris has a fair amount of weight to it, actually. I wouldn't call it lighter at all. Lighter it's than Too shorter. Many Bones? It's I shorter would. than Too Many Bones, but I wouldn't say that it's lighter. It's a Euro game, so it doesn't have the inherent randomness that you see in Too Many Bones, but I think there's plenty of weight there to it. Wow. It's good. Basically, Ex Libris is a game where you are a book collector in a medieval town slash city, and they're going to hire a city librarian, which is a paid position. And so you're all trying to compete <laughs> for the position of city librarian. And the way that you're going to do this is by impressing the judge at the end of the game with your library collection. And so you have this ongoing hand of cards, and each card is a little section of a library shelf with one to four books in it of different genres, but with their titles being close together in the alphabet. It might be a bunch of L's, it might be a bunch of H's, that sort of thing. And the more common letters will have several cards of that letter, whereas the less common letters might only have one. And through the course of the game, you're trying to put these down on your board to build your bookshelf. But once you've put something down, only certain special abilities will let you move it. And your final collection needs to be in alphabetical order, and it needs to be all aligned with itself as much as you can, and you get points for things being in order and the largest sort of block that you have without any missing cards. The way that you get the cards, the way that you get special abilities, the way that you get rid of cards you don't want and get ones you do, is by a worker placement mechanic. You have a group of little assistants, which are little meeples with pointy heads like the little gnomes, 
Although in the full game, as opposed to the beginner's game, you each get a special assistant that has a special ability, which could be a trash golem or a gelatinous cube. This is happening in a very sort of Dungeons and Dragons city. And then every round, you get a set of buildings come out that are worker placement spaces, and you send your workers, one at a time in sequence, out to the board, and there are some where something happens immediately, and others where something only happens at the end of the round. There are ones where everybody can go there, there are ones where you can kick people off, there are ones where you are blocking people from going there, and it changes every round. A couple of them, I think, what, three stay from the previous round, and then more come in, but then they get reshuffled so things might come back. One stays. One, one stays, and um. then... But they build up. So rather than that one that stays replacing the previous one that stayed, it is added to the previous ones that have stayed. So over time, your options are expanding. And your predictable options are expanding. The first round, they're all new. The second round, you know this one's staying, but then the others are all new, and so on and so forth. There's always one more every round that stayed from previous rounds, and you know it's going to be there in the following round. Your books on your cards come in different genres and there's a genre that has been declared your genre that's your secret goal that you want as many as possible there's one that's forbidden that's going to take away points and then there's bonuses for having the best spread of genres and so you're trying to balance building up the sort of spatial aspect of your library with getting the genres you want and the genres you don't want and one of the things that makes this game really charming is the book titles. There's so many book cards that you can play it multiple times and not see all the same book titles. And every single book in the game has a unique title. And they are often hilarious. It's the sort of thing where, of course, I say that and I can't remember a single one, but, you know, dealing with demons, necromancy for the confused, all of them are at least sort of clever and some of them are very clever. Whenever you get a new card, you not only are thinking about its place in your strategy, that there's all these silly book titles. Exlibris is packed to the gills with charm. Each of the special workers that you can get at the beginning of the game, you each get one, if you're playing the full game, has their own unique meeple to send out into the world. And they each have very different but pretty thematic abilities as well, some of which are more aggressive and take that than others. The gelatinous cube is a good example. It sort of runs a protection racket. If it goes to a location on the board and takes up a spot there, anybody else who goes to that spot then has to give something to the owner of the gelatinous cube in order to go there. There's also a fire elemental worker for a different character choice that can destroy books in places, thereby preventing other players from getting them. But there are enough custom meeples and player choices that you could easily exclude those from your game if you didn't want to use them. In a lot of ways, the game isn't very confrontational, and so sometimes if you bring in one of these choices, like if you're doing it randomly, you're like, oh my gosh, this game just got way more confrontational. Yeah, it's a pretty standard Euro game in that way. The conflict is indirect rather than direct. So like a deck builder called Valley of the Kings, a big part of this strategy in Ex Libris is deciding when and how you're going to switch over from taking cards to playing cards. 
because playing cards takes actions that you probably are going to want to be spending elsewhere to get cards or rearrange your shelves or do other things like that. But at the end of the game, cards that are in your hand don't count for anything. So it's balancing getting the cards you want, and given how difficult it is to rearrange your shelves, there are often cards that you want out on the board because they slot in nicely with either where you've gone or where you think you're going to go as you build out your collection, and playing what you have to bank it for the end of the game. I'd say as worker placement games go, this one has several locations that you can go to that are much more complicated than a lot of the worker placement locations you see in other games like Lords of Waterdeep or Zolkin, that sort of thing. However, the fact that they trickle in at three new locations every turn, I think it's three, it might be more makes the game easier to teach because you can describe other locations that are in the deck to people and say there are some locations that let you do this but most of the locations are about acquiring shelf cards and then as the new locations come out you can teach those locations one of them will stick around for future turns and then another three or four whatever it is locations will come out and that makes it easier to sort of spoon feed the game in more manageable portions to new people rather than having to describe all the choices on the board, which is usually what you have to do when teaching worker placement games. We've played Ex Libris a couple of times now with different groups of people, and it's charming. The last game that we were going to talk about in some depth today was actually Matthew's Christmas gift to me, because he thought it would be my sort of thing, and that is Dungeon Pets. Dungeon Pets is apparently based on a game that I don't think either of us have played, but isn't actually very much like that other game. The original game is called Dungeon Lords, and it's by Vlada Chavatel. And Dungeon Lords thematically is very similar to a series of computer games put out by Bullfrog, a sadly long-defunct independent games company that was gobbled up by Electronic Arts as they were growing to rule the world where you play the lord of a dungeon and you are just doing your thing you know evil stuff building things out mining gold and using it to hire and attract monsters of various sorts but periodically heroes show up and they try and wreck all of your stuff so it's how you design your dungeon in terms of pathways and traps and monsters to hold them off well dungeon pets is a sequel to that sort of where Vlada Chavatil says, okay, well, your dungeon lord was defeated and his dungeon was wrecked by those awful heroes. And the imps, who are kind of his menial servants... They uh, needed another job. Right, they're left with nothing to do. And they decide, well, there are lots of other dungeon lords out there. Why don't we raise pets for them that they would enjoy? So each little clan of imps has their little burrow and they have a cage for pets and then places where they can build more. And there's some source they have that are actually breeding these pets. And so during the course of the game, there's a central board, which is the place where cages and additions to cages and baby pets and food for pets and all your scoring and exhibitioning and who you're selling them to and everything are and then you have your own board which is where your imps are where you portion them out for their tasks and keep your money and also kind of off to the side are your cages where you keep your pets that you're uh, developing for sale and exhibition and each pet is kind of its own little 
mechanical marvel. It's got kind of a spinner, so there's like a little picture of the pet, and then there's a rotating a dial, rotating dial, not a spinner. Well, if you could make it spin, <laughs> you wouldn't want to. It's kind of an egg shape, the whole thing. And so there's this dial down below, and the dial moves as the pet grows. And so each round, you have this little shield, and you decide how many groups of imps you're going to send out, and whether or not you're going to send money with them, and that sort of thing. And then each player sort of lays down their mat, and the player with the biggest group gets to send that group out first. And then you go down in descending order, and the first player marker is a tiebreaker for groups of the same size. And so you send out imps to go buy pets, buy cages, you know, do a whole bunch of other stuff. Then you can keep some back on your mat to entertain pets and clean the poop out of their cages. There are poop cubes. And prevent them from escaping. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> if they get stronger than their cages. And so you do that sort of sequence of things, and then your pets have needs. You have to take care of them. And the way that this works is that you have this hand of cards, and you have one card of each color as your sort of base deck. And then as the dial on the pet sort of unit gets advanced, there are these little stripes of different colors. And as the bigger they get, the more stripes they have. And each little stripe indicates a need that they have. And the color indicates the color card that that need comes on. So then you get as many cards as you have stripes on your pets that have needs. And then you have to assign needs to your pets and then try and fulfill those needs. If you give them food needs, you gotta feed them. If they have poop needs, they're gonna poop. Um, if they have entertainment needs, you have to send imps to entertain them or else have enriching cages. If they have anger needs, you better have strong cages. And if you can't fulfill a need other than the anger or the magic, they get a misery token. Despair. A despair token. And those decrease their value to you. If they have magic needs and you don't deal with the magic needs, they get a uh, mutation and then they would get a second one and they instead disappear into another dimension. And they get anger needs in excess to the strength of their cages. They escape unless you have imps that prevent them from escape, in which case they go to the hospital. The imps go to the hospital. The imps go to the hospital. The yes, but the pet is retained. And so you're looking ahead. There's tiles of buyers and tiles of exhibitions and so each round after the first there's an exhibition where you can get points for having pets with certain characteristics and then a buyer comes up and wants certain things and doesn't want certain things nobody wants despair tokens and so you can get both points and money for selling pets to the dungeon lords and, more importantly, get them out of your cages before they eat your imps or otherwise become totally unmanageable. You want to have sort of constantly be getting pets and then getting rid of pets. And it's just this tight little puzzle where you're trying to make sure that you have the right resources to fulfill the right needs. And you're looking ahead two or three rounds and saying, okay, you know... I, I need an angry pet because this guy who I'm going to be trying to sell to in two rounds wants angry pets, and he's a carnivore, which means I need meat, but I can't keep a food around too long because it ages. It can seem a little bit overwhelming when you sit down to it and you're like, well, there's this mechanic, and then there's this mechanic, and then there's this mechanic, and then there's this mechanic. But it all works together so thematically that it's just like, 
well, of course I can get this special item that's a long-handled shovel, which means that I can clean the cages even without emptying them first. Because, of course, otherwise the pets would eat my imps, so I have to move the pet to another cage or sell it before I can clean the cage. Of course. Yeah, I'm really impressed with how thematic this game is and what a great sense of humor it has, both in terms of the way the manual is written, but also just the way that the humor is baked into the game at so many different levels. And there are a lot of very clever design choices in here. For example, like a lot of games that aren't worker placement games, the first player marker simply rotates around the board each turn. Usually in worker placement games, the first player marker is one of the most important things you can get, and there's usually an action space to try and get your hands on it, because being able to go to a spot before other people is huge. In this game, anybody can go first on any round if they allocate enough imps and or gold coins to the size of their first group, and these are allocated in secret before revealing them to the other players. So it's just a question of how much do you want to go first? How much do you want to invest in that first group? And how likely do you think it is that the other players will similarly invest in their first groups? This game is just packed with charm. As those pets get older, you're drawing more and more cards, and you feel more and more like they're getting big and out of control, and you're just frantically throwing things at them because you've invested. You're investing more and more and keeping them around, too, and they're getting more and more valuable. But the game really does this wonderful job of giving you the feel that you're frantically trying to keep a totally unsustainable situation under control just long enough to offload these pets onto their new owners and get paid. Yeah, they're like worms, and they're like lizards, and some of them have huge teeth, and some of them are like dragons, and they're all funky, and they all have names. And you can look them up. They don't crowd the little sort of egg-shaped things with too much detail. You just kind of have <coughs> their need colors and how fast they grow and what they eat. But if you look them up in the manual, they each have names and flavor text. You have these demon lords coming up that have like horns and demon lord princesses and demon lord necromancers dungeon, and dungeon yeah. lord. They're like, I want an angry pet that eats a lot, but doesn't have any magic. Or there's one that's this farmer guy, and he's like, he wants ones with lots of poop. Lots of different colors of poop. <laughs> you know? It's just kind of wacky. And, like, there's a space where you can go to ask your relatives to come and hang out with you, and that's how you get more imps. But the idea is that you're like, hey, guys, we got a great racket going on. Come join us. Yeah. There's an expansion available called Dark Alley which adds more pets and more cages. It adds a whole other board of places you can send imps to. It's very definitely increasing the complexity of the game, although some of the new cages and the new cage upgrades could easily be folded in, along with the new artifacts that you can get, like that long-handled shovel, although that's from the base game. Some of the other stuff is complex enough that I probably wouldn't fold it in until you're more familiar with the game. The new pets have more unusual aspects to them and typically special abilities. I was super impressed with what a great package this game is. I would recommend all three of the games we're talking about in this podcast very strongly, but Dungeon Pets is an older game and it's not talked about much these days, 
despite being produced by one of the great designers of the modern era, Vlada Chavato. And I think it deserves to be given more attention. It's a great game. It is good fun. And I'm looking forward to playing it again. So those are the three that we're going to talk about in depth. We did want to make a quick side note at the end that a lot of our playing time recently has been taken up with playing Pandemic Legacy Season 2 with Matthew's parents and brother. And there's not much that we can or should say about it because it's a legacy game and there would be spoilers. But we played Season 1 as well when it was what, last year, year before, something like that when it was new. And it was really cool, and this one is even cooler, even more edge-of-your-seat, new revelations coming every game, or at least every month, you know, new things to find out, new mechanics that get folded into the game, new discoveries to be made, and it's got us on the edge of our seats. You want to play another game like you want to watch another episode of your TV show. It's the Netflix of board games. Season 1 of Pandemic Legacy was also very, very good. But it hewed much closer to the standard pandemic mold. I think it's probably not a spoiler to say at this point that a lot of the mechanisms introduced in Pandemic Legacy Season 1 were pulled from the various expansions and spin-offs of the original pandemic. They were then used in different ways and added to this really clever campaign design. But that's kind of where they were coming from. Season 2 throws most of that stuff out. It is a very different game. It's much more ambitious in its design, and so far I think it has succeeded completely. All of the risks and new design choices that they made are paying off spectacularly. I highly recommend it. I think you should play Season 1 first, particularly if you haven't played tons and tons of Pandemic just because it's maybe a little bit more accessible and because it's a lot of fun. And I think you might have a hard time going back to season one after playing season two. So I think you should play them in order. Our next game is going to be October, I think. So, you know, it's, I don't know if you're familiar with the general idea of the pandemic legacy games that you play one game for each month. And then if you lose it, you play a second game in that month. So playing through the whole legacy experience is somewhere between 12 and 24 games. Although season two has an initial sort of a training game that doesn't count toward those. So we've been working our way through the months and some months we've gotten through in one game and some of them we've lost the first game and had to go on to the second. And we are just about to start October. So we've just got a couple months left and can't wait to see where this is going, though we have our suspicions. And the rest of my family, they are strangely reticent to quit their jobs and shut down their lives until we finish playing through this. <laughs> no matter how many times that I remind them we are attempting to save the entire world, their priorities are all out of whack. So it's taking longer to get through this than I'd like, but it's been a heck of a ride. So the games that we are looking forward to playing next are Charterstone and Clans of Caledonia. Like I said, we haven't played them yet, so we can't say too much about them or how we're going to feel about them. But Charterstone is another legacy game. It's a competitive legacy game. It's a worker placement game where you're adding worker placement spaces, and then the game continues to be playable even once that sort of initial legacy experience is done. Most of what I know about it so far is that the art is adorable. It looks like it's going to be kind of on the medium light side, lots of cute stuff. 
after the brutal intensity of Pandemic Legacy, we're looking forward to settling in with something a little bit less, the world is going to be destroyed unless you do this thing, than Pandemic Legacy. And it's by the designer of Viticulture and Euphoria and Scythe, and he can pretty much do no wrong when it comes to designing. I noticed Isaac Childress, his name is on the box as well. He's the designer of Gloomhaven and Forge Wars, which I haven't played, but would very much like to get my hands on. So some pretty amazing names associated with this. I'm just dying to play it. Then Clans of Caledonia is a game in which you are Scottish clans trying to run your clans. You've got... I think it's during the rise of the Industrial Revolution. You've got woodcutters and miners, and you can raise cows for milk or meat, and sheep for wool or meat, and you can grow grain for bread or whiskey. And so it's got area control aspects, it's got resource management and financial aspects, it's got market manipulation, it's got import and export scoring mechanisms. It's quite a complex economic game and we haven't actually played it yet but we're looking forward to finding out if it's dense and meaty and you want to sink your teeth into it or if it's just too much i'm not worried about it being too much it's pretty well reviewed all right that doesn't mean it's not going to be too much for me you're a smart cookie so i think that's going to wrap it up for this episode it's been great talking to you again and hopefully we'll be able to do so again without it being ages and ages yeah Please do subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already, and we'd love it if you shared us with your friends. We have a YouTube channel now called Never Enough Games. I just put up a how-to-play video for Great Western Trail, which took a truly absurd amount of time to make, but hopefully is instructive. Oh, and uh, I have a novel up on Amazon now <laughs> that I uh, wrote. That has in... nothing to do with board games. That is correct. It has absolutely zero to do with board games. It does have a dachshund. It's something I wrote in grad school years ago. It's called It Can't Be Helped, and you can check it out as an ebook on Amazon for the low, low price of $3. Please do check it out. <laughs> All right, and we'll talk to you next time. Yeah, thanks for listening. <laughs>